Well, hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Wayne, and I'm one of the pastors here at WS. And we're really glad that you're able to join us today. Um, if you are joining us for the first time, an especially warm welcome to you. Well, for the next two weeks, as Dan mentioned earlier, uh, we're going to be taking a look at the topic of joy. Uh, it's a particularly relevant topic for us as we journey together through this difficult time uh, as a church and as a world as well. How can we find joy? How can we experience joy? And our hope for this short series is that we might be able to find joy in our circumstances and also to experience the joy that we can find in Jesus. Well, in March of this year, um, at a time when many people were uh, entering a time of lockdown and quarantine and social isolation in this world, um, Yale University made its most popular course online, uh, most popular course in history, available for free uh, for anyone to access online. Um, in its first year in Yale campus in 2018, uh, this class had an enrollment of 1,200 students. Uh, that might not seem like a lot to you, uh, but actually uh, Yale's entire undergraduate uh, enrollment is around 6,000. And that means that a fourth of the entire school uh, were all enrolled in this course. In the past three months, uh, this course was made available online and almost three million people all around the world have signed up for this. The title of the course, The Science of Well-Being. And the subject of this course, How to Increase Your Happiness. How to Increase Your Happiness. Everyone wants to be happy. Everyone wants to have joy. Yet at the same time in today's culture, happiness and joy is something that seems so temporary, so fleeting for so many of us. And this is especially true today when so many of the things that people depend on uh, to make them happy, things like travel, entertainment, community, sports, financial stability, and most of all, health seems to be so easily able to be taken away. Happiness that is here now, but gone just a moment later. For many of us, this understanding of happiness and joy starts early on in life. Uh, some of us may, may remember uh, going to McDonald's and ordering Happy Meals. And the idea is that for these few moments while we eat on our burgers and fries and we play on a cheaply made toy that isn't designed to last long, we are supposed to be happy, a happy meal. When we get a little older, uh, we move on from these happy meals and we buy Nintendos and Playstations that come with this thing called a joystick. And the idea is that while we play with these animated characters on a screen uh, with this thing called a joystick, we are supposed to be having a joy-filled time. Later on, when we uh, finish high school and we get our driver's license, uh, we borrow our parents' cars 
and we take it out on a joyride, and the list goes on. We're so used to the idea that happiness and joy is just about what we experience in the present moment, in the here and now. But as long as our understanding of joy is tied to the present moment, it cannot last long. Because by definition, the present moment becomes past in a matter of an instant. While scripture has a very different understanding of joy, joy appears five times in the six verses of today's psalm, and it's really the main theme of the psalm of today. And I pray that as we go through the psalm together, that we'll learn to, we'll learn to find a joy that is real, a joy that is true, and a joy that ultimately lasts. So why don't we pray together? Father, we give you thanks uh, for the psalm. And Father, we know that amidst uh, our difficult challenges, you are a God who is able to provide us with joy. And so Father, encourage us with your word. And Father, may we um, really find the source of true joy in your word. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we look at today's psalm, we're going to f focus on two points. And the first point is that joy comes from rem remembering what God has done. Joy comes from remembering what God has done. Psalm 126 begins like this. A song of ascents. When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. Then it was said among the nations, the Lord has done great things for them. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. Well, these three verses make up the first part of the psalm. And if you notice grammatically, these three verses are in the past tense. When the Lord restored, we were like those who dreamed. Our mouths were filled with laughter. And the idea is that as the Israelites reflected upon something that happened in the past, on something that God has done for them, they are filled with joy. Well, Psalm 126 is a part of 15 psalms, a group of psalms called the Songs of Ascent. And these psalms were sung by pilgrims as they gathered in Jerusalem and as they ascended the hill to worship God in the temple. This particular psalm remembers a time when the Israelites returned home, uh, back to Jerusalem, after many years of captivity in Babylon. Verse 1 says, When the Lord restored the fortunes of Zion, or another way it's translated, when the Lord brought back the captives to Zion. Israel had been in exile for many years in Babylon and were finally allowed to return home under Persian rule. But if you remember when the Israelites returned back to Zion, to Jerusalem, they found their entire city in ruins. Their houses were rubble. The temple had been destroyed and sacked. 
and the land was occupied by a foreign army. It was nothing like their old home. And so instead of a time of rejoicing, it should have been for them a time of mourning, of grieving, of sorrow, of lament. People were about to face a difficult life, both spiritually and politically. And yet the people still sang a song of joy. Our culture's understanding of joy is that it is something experienced in the absence of tears. It's something experienced in the absence of suffering, in the absence of lament. But that's actually not the biblical understanding of joy. This psalm says that in the midst of tears, in the midst of hardships, in the midst of lament, despair, there's actually something that sets us apart as God's people from the world. And it's that even in the midst of all these difficulties, we can experience God's joy. I remember when I was uh, first serving at my first church in New York, and I had the privilege of serving with a a group of young adults um, who led many of the key ministries in the church. Uh, We met together once a week to pray and to share. And to get to know them, one of the things that I asked each one of them to do uh, when I first got there was to take an hour each to share their life stories over a course of a few months. And I remember when I first proposed this, I remember some people asking, why an hour? You know, isn't that just a waste of time? Isn't a more efficient use of time is maybe we can do a, t- a quick 10-minute introduction of each of ourselves and uh, use our time to talk about something more important, about ministry, about the Bible. Well, we went ahead with it, um, each one of us taking one whole hour to talk about our lives. But at the end of the uh, few months, what each of these leaders found was that these one-hour stories each week were not just about me learning about them or them learning about each other. There were times that helped each one of us reflect on how God used his word, how God used critical events in life, and how God used people in our lives to shape us, to deliver us, to grow us, and to set us free. And there were stories about how we got this far and what has God done in our lives. And these stories were amazing, how some of them came out of incredibly difficult family situations, how some of them were entangled in various sins, addictions, and even crime, how some of them had gone through major losses or hurts, uh, trauma, how some of them were so far from God. But for each one of us, somehow God made his way into our lives. And there were stories of how the power of Jesus and the gospel set us free from our captivity to sin. And some of them were so honest that they were hard to hear. Yet by the very end, our response was that of gratitude and joy for what God has done for us. The Israelites here, they were able to have joy because they remembered what God had done for them 
in the past. How God had delivered them from captivity and brought them home. How God had been so faithful to them, even though they were unfaithful to him. And even though the present circumstances were difficult, their joy was based on what God had already done in the past. The psalmist says in verse 2, Our mouths were filled with laughter, our tongues with songs of joy. The Lord has done great things for us, and we are filled with joy. How well and how intentionally do we remember what God has done for us? In the book of Joshua, chapter 4, God commanded his people to pile up stones after a miraculous event. And the people asked, why, why are you telling us to pile up stones? And God replied, because in future generations, people will ask them, what is the meaning of these stones? And you would have to tell them, it is to remember what God has done in this place. For many of us, it's so easy to forget and remember to look back. We are so mesmerized by our culture that says joy and happiness is about the here and now. But that isn't true. Do we have places and times in our church, in our homes, in our personal lives to look back and remember? Perhaps it comes during the time of Bible study when we remember how God has been faithful to his word. Maybe it's remembering how God has graciously answered something we prayed for. It might be sharing stories of Jesus, of how God has worked in our lives to other people. But perhaps the most powerful thing for us to remember is what God has done for us in Christ. The Apostle Paul says in Romans 5, he says, but God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Um, next Sunday, uh, Pastor Andrew will be conducting a communion service. And for us as God's people, it is a reminder that even in this uh, season of difficulty, even in our own personal challenges in life, that God has actually done something great for us in the past in Christ. The Lord has done great things for us. So first, joy comes from remembering what God has done. But the psalmist doesn't stop in the past. Because if you notice in the next three verses of the psalm, it shifts the focus from the past to the future. And the psalmist gives us two lenses to help us see the future. So the second point for today is that joy comes with seeing our future through a different lens. Joy comes with seeing our future through a different lens. And I'd like for us to first take a look at verse 5 and 6. And then at the very end, we'll come back to verse 4. And the first lens that the psalmist gives us is the lens of farming. In verse 5, it says, Those who sow with tears will reap with songs of joy. Those who go out weeping, carrying seed to sow, will return with songs of joy, carrying sheaves with them. 
Here, the psalmist, he gives us a picture of a farmer. Uh, And the farmer is carrying grain, going out into the field, uh, scattering seed into the soil, uh, cultivating the crop. And one reason why uh, the psalmist says there's weeping is because farming is incredibly hard work. Farming uh, is a life that demands intense physical labor from sunrise to sunset. Yet in the midst of this hard labor, where the farmers find their joy, is looking forward to the day of harvest. They're looking forward to a day when their labor will be finally rewarded with sheaves, with bundles of beautiful grain. Another reason why there may be weeping in the ancient world is that in those times, seeds are everything you have. It's all you own. And when you sow the seeds into the ground, it's throwing all of what you have into the soil. And for that year, there's no guarantee that there won't be flooding or drought. There's no guarantee or certainty that there won't be pests who might eat up all the crops. You might lose it all, everything you own. But amidst this risky sacrifice for every farmer, there is this hope. This hope that there is going to be a bountiful harvest in the end. It's a costly joy. And if you remember the story of the Israelites, this was true for them as well. After they returned to Israel, after the captivity, rebuilding the city and their temple took more than 20 years. They're faced with various troubles, various opposition. Their work was suspended for many times. And very much like farming, it was incredibly hard and arduous. But at the same time, all of Israel looked forward to the day when their city and temple would finally be complete. The day where God would bring this work to completion. Today, we live in a society and culture that looks for instant returns and instant results, don't we? We live in a culture of fast food, social media, Netflix, Amazon Prime, where we get what we want whenever we want it. We don't like to wait long. But wouldn't you agree that most of the things that are worthwhile take time? And won't you agree that most of the things that are worthwhile take sacrifice? In Hollywood movies, love is instantaneous. Love at first sight. Uh, The courting and the dating period is wonderful and romantic. Happiest time of their lives. And then they get married. And the first year of marriage might be good and fun, but then in the movies, it all goes downhill. And that's what our movies tell us. But when I talk to couples that have been married for a long time, I find that the Hollywood idea is really a lie. Most of these couples would say that the first few years of marriage are the hardest. It was one when they fought the most, when they tried to figure each other out. It was when they learned to trust each other 
and work to really develop healthy habits and a foundation in Christ. But after that years of hard work, uh, you start to see fruit, they would say. It gets better, richer. I'm sure parenting is similar. It's hard work. The years of endless uh, sleepless nights, or maybe when you're tired after a long day's work, you come home and it's difficult to spend energy to teach, to care for, and to love your children in a God-honoring way. For students working hard now, will it be worth it in the end? For pastors, for missionaries, for church leaders who invest their time, their energy into the ministry, will it bear fruit? Will people grow? For us Christians who continue to battle with sin, striving to live holiness, righteously in a way that God has called us to live. It's all hard work. And these things are difficult and we might even be tempted to give up. But in line of this farming imagery, the time to sow and labor is followed by a time to reap. It's a costly joy, one that's accompanied by many tears, weeping, by labor, by suffering. But it's not so much about the present hardship, but the fo focus is on the future harvest. And joy comes in the hope that one day after all this work, all the toil, there is going to be an abundant harvest. However, and this is an incredibly important however, uh, the harvest is dependent on one condition. And that condition is God's grace. And so finally, let's take a look at verse 4. The psalmist says in verse 4, Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Restore our fortunes, Lord, like streams in the Negev. Um, the Negev is a part of Palestine. And you can see uh, in the picture there, uh, it's a part of Palestine that is mostly desert. And for much of the year, it's arid. There's not much vegetation. And the riverbed is completely dried out. But once a year during the rainy season, uh, the sudden intense rain falls for a few weeks. And the riverbed uh, gets filled with running water. And what happens is uh, something quite amazing, is that around the streams and the rivers, wild flowers spring up. And it results in this panorama of green, of vegetation, of flowers out of nowhere. And in this image of the Negev, there are no farmers. There is no cultivating, there is no sowing but it's all the work of nature, an expression of God's grace as he sends the rain. And when I read the psalm, I'm actually really glad this psalm is in, this verse is in the psalm. Because I think even those of us who uh, don't know Christ understand farming. Everyone in this world knows that if we want to have a good harvest, we must work hard. 
we must labor, we must suffer. But the Negev, this image of the Negev is a picture of nothing but the sheer grace of God offered to his beloved children. In the New Testament, uh, we meet a boy who brings five loaves, uh, two fish, and he humbly offers it to Jesus. And Jesus, he takes these elements and he blesses it and he does a miraculous work of feeding with it. In the same way, Jesus uh, called 12 common people to be his disciples. And most of them were just simple fishermen. But as they faithfully followed and obeyed Jesus, God, by his grace, used them to change the entire world. For those of us here today, uh, we are here because God, in his mercy and grace, chose us. And he continually chooses to use us for his kingdom. We who are weak, we who are sinful, inadequate, and he uses us in his miraculous kingdom work. And as Christians, as we think about the future, uh, this should bring us joy. Here is something small that I'm offering, something that I've worked hard at, something I've labored for. Might be my children, my marriage, my ministry, my work, my studies, my relationship with God. Uh, this is the farming part. And yet God takes our small offering and he blesses it. And he can do incredible things with it. And he can actually even bless others with it. And this is the negative part. There are no guarantees that you and I will get the return that we expect or want. But Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 3 that as we do the planting, the watering, the sowing, God is the Lord of the harvest, and he's the one who will make things grow. And when we see the incredible things that he can do with what little we can offer him, just like these dreams in the Negev, that should bring us joy. Some of us here, uh, you might be joining us, and uh, there might be a lot of challenges that you're going through. You might have heavy hearts as you watch this. Some of us may be in difficult and painful circumstances. Some, some of us might be in places of sorrow. And when we look at our circumstances, it might be hard for us to sing songs of thanksgiving and joy as we worship because that's not really how we're experiencing life at the moment. And for some of us, if we were honest, we would rather sing songs of lament. And there is a place for that in the Christian life. But we are reminded in the psalm that in spite of what our culture teaches, joy is not defined by just the here and now. Joy is about what God has done for us in the past. And our ability to remember it 
and tell it to others. And as we celebrate the Lord's table next week, we're reminded that this is true. The Lord has done great things for us, and that gives us joy. But joy is also about what is ahead. And yes, it will require hard labor as we sow and do what God has called us to do. But our future picture also needs to include God's grace of the Negev. The hope that as we toil, as we labor for God, as we work for him, God in his mercy and grace is going to bring a bountiful harvest. And ultimately, we look forward to that one day when Christ returns and brings his kingdom fully here, when we can fully say the Lord has done great things for us and we are filled with joy.